Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, May 3rd, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. I am bereft today of my usual uh, omnidirectional microphone or unidirectional. What is it, Noah? It's a some kind of directional I microphone. I think they're all uni. Okay, so it's a unidirectional microphone that I usually have, and I'm now talking to you straight through my the uh, microphone in my my MacBook. So if I sound different, I apologize. That, of course, the voice you heard was that of our uh, producer and associate editor of commentary, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hello. Also with us, of course, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Um, so on November 3rd, 1969, Richard Nixon, who had uh, ascended to the presidency uh, by half a percentage point over Hubert Humphrey uh, with a scant 43.5% of the vote, uh, gave a speech from the Oval Office that came to be known historically as the silent majority speech. And mostly the speech was about Vietnam. Uh, and about the uh, attitude uh, of the American people toward the war in Vietnam. Um, but uh, the speech uh, had a, a larger historical meaning and context that we can get to, because I want to ask everybody, you guys, and then our listeners, the question of whether we are heading into another period in which uh, what Nixon uh, brilliantly called, I think it was uh, the writer Ray Price, I'm not sure, came up with the phrase, the silent majority. Okay, here's what he said, okay, quote. This, by the way, I bring this up because this was this was by leagues, this was one of the most successful presidential speeches ever given. After it was given, the White House received millions of telegrams of support, and it was the first real indication that Nixon, who again had sort of won in a weird way, there were there was a split in the right because George Wallace had run uh, third party and um, and uh, three years after this, almost to the day, three years after this speech, Nixon got uh, almost sixty two percent of the vote. George McGovern thirty seven percent of the vote. It was the second largest landslide in in American history. And this speech told the reason, in part, that Nixon won that overwhelming majority, as you'll hear. Okay, here's what he said. I know it may not be fashionable to speak of patriotism or national destiny these days, but I feel it is appropriate to do so on this occasion. 200 years ago, this nation was weak and poor, but even then, America was the hope of billions in the world. Today, we have become the strongest and richest nation in the world, and the wheel of destiny has turned so that any hope the world has for the survival of peace and freedom will be determined by whether the American people have the moral stamina and the courage to meet the challenge of free world leadership. Let let historians not record that when America was the most powerful nation in the world, we passed on the other side of the road and allowed the last hopes for peace and freedom of millions of people to be suffocated by the forces of totalitarianism. And so tonight, to you, the great silent majority of my fellow Americans, I ask for your support. 
I pledged in my campaign for the presidency to end the war in a way that we could win the peace. I have initiated a plan of action which will enable me to keep that pledge. The more support I can have from the American people, the sooner that pledge can be redeemed. Okay, again, this was a speech about the war. It was not about domestic issues. But the phrase, the silent majority, had this gigantic and what one might even say world historical resonance because it spoke to the idea that the elites in the United States, elites that had, by the way, helped lead the country into the Vietnam War, and then when the going got tough, turned against it just as quickly as, as they had, you know, very arrogantly supported it, that these elites were speaking in a way that was drowning out the actual views and opinions and feelings of the silent majority of Americans, that the great number of Americans who were not focused on politics, who were not focused on, on you know, sort of like the day-to-day questions of whatever it is that passed for social media in 1969, but had enduring views of this country and enduring ideas about what we stood for, whether we were good or bad, whether we were a force for good or a force for evil, and whether or not we were, um, you know, whether or not this was, uh, there was a world of opinion beyond that from op-eds and, and uh, you know, anchormen and, and all of that, that could, uh, that he could break through to speak to. And you might say that because of this speech, Nixon bought himself years of running room until his own political troubles cratered any possibility of his uh, ending the Vietnam War in any way that that was not ignominious, as was the case um, a little less than six years later. So the silent majority speech, very powerful rhetoric, very strong. People forget that Nixon was a formidable figure uh, and uh, actually capable of rising to the occasion with quite Uh, grand emphasis on very uh, enduring themes. And we look today to the way that the left and the elites uh, of our major institutions are talking about the United States and thinking about the United States. And I am wondering whether uh, this appeal was kind of what, what led to Trump in the first place and whether there is a silent majority of people who are, who are already chafing under the, the horrors of wokeness who are going to explode outward in a way that we don't even really appreciate yet. Well, we should establish, I suppose, the, the events that occasioned this uh, observation on your part. <clears throat> a, a series of municipal elections in a suburban Texas district uh, outside Dallas-Fort Worth, pretty wealthy, pretty well-educated, pretty white, um, all the entire series of elections, school board elections, uh, mayoral elections, um, all of them turned on this issue of uh, whether or not a school program based on the tenets of anti-racism, anti-discrimination, mandatory racism training, creating a database of microaggressions, all this stuff, um, which you're very familiar with in elite opinion, was on the ballot. And it was trounced just destroyed 
to the tune of 70 to 30 almost across the board in all these races, from the mayoral race and the school board race, and it really caught um, campaigners in favor of this sort of stuff by surprise. Um, not because they didn't think there was a, a vociferous opposition to their program, but because they didn't know the scale of it. And, um, you know, you mentioned Donald Trump and his regular invocations of the silent majority, um, but his, and he was probably at the forefront of a backlash against this sort of sentiment. It was with us and present in 2014, 2015, 2016, and the environment that led to his election. Um, but his, you know, real failure was to suggest that that silent majority, the issue that the silent majority turned on was support for him and himself, as opposed to an issue set. When he made reference to an issue set, it was usually in passing. It wasn't never central to his appeal, certainly not extemporaneously. When he well, was on he the teleprompter, it, he would be. Right. Well, he evoked it, I think, on two issues that were, you know, very effective politically as polarizers in his direction, but I think were actually they were representative of the silent majority's mood, but were in fact evanescent and not as central as what would come now uh, in the, the, the wokeness, the anti-racism, all sorts of stuff, which were immigration on the one hand and the Muslim and the Muslim ban on the other. Those, those were the two that, that both outraged and, and made him, you know, anathema among regular people who said that he was a vicious, monstrous racist uh, and of course, by invoking them over and over again, and I think having a bunch of people, not just his base, because he didn't have a base then, but um, say, wait a minute, I mean, I'm concerned about immigration. I'm not a racist. Uh, well, I think that you're trying to shut that conversation out or wait a but, minute, I'm worried about Islamic terrorism and you guys aren't talking about it. And at least he's talking about it. But the parallels he would draw in 2016 weren't about the sort of stuff we're talking about now. He would say, he would talk about crime. He would talk right. about violent crime. He would talk about rioting, um, which is probably why they, you know, made this very ham-fisted parallel to 1968, 1969, because it was about domestic issues. It was, you know, on prima facie about Vietnam and support for Vietnam, but it was how that uh, antipathy towards Vietnam manifested itself in the, in the, the activist class. And the background to that was pretty much five consecutive years of regular destructive urban riots, racial riots, um, which is the backdrop to the 1968 campaign. And I don't think you can divorce it from the silent majority either. But the, the, the conditions that Donald Trump was, was inveighing against in 2016 were apparent, but they weren't really prevalent. Today, there's no question that we have a violent crime problem, that we have a rioting problem. Right. Well, they weren't. I mean, he was wrong in 2016. We did not have a we did not have a wave of violent crime from illegal immigrants. That was a false portrait of what was going on. However, the idea that people might be alarmed by the cultural changes represented by open, you know, by sort of open borders immigration, that was neither wrong nor right. It simply was. And he was saying boy, this is terrible. And Hillary Clinton and the Democrats were saying nothing except you shouldn't be saying that. It's mean and it's not nice. And, you know, it offends people in our base. And that was not an answer, right? So those, so the weird thing was he started the culture war and successfully in some sense, I guess, particularly in the Republican Party, 
but the conditions that he was describing were not, as you say, were not really present in 2016. And now they're present. You know who's not, you know who's responsible for the wave of urban crime? It's not illegal immigrants. Well, so this is actually, it's if, not. if, if okay, we have a new silent majority in this country, part of what will help it coalesce is around the silence the elite have about saying certain realities, about violent crime and the, the demographic uh, population that's driving violent crime, particularly in urban areas. They will not talk about it. They talk about that, hence the systemic discussions. At the same time, if you're, you know, someone who sends your kids to public school in a lot of parts of this country now, your kids come home talking constantly about race in a way that is not, that, that first of all, is is not the way most of us were raised hearing about race, depending on where we went to school. Um, it is a non-colorblind, it's neo-racism. Uh, I don't even want to call it anti-racist anymore because it's neo-racism. It is, it is the opposite of colorblindness. And I think the vast majority of people in this country still embrace uh, not the idea that there's no such thing as racism, but that we want to pursue equality of opportunity and a colorblind standard for assessing people's abilities and, and futures while also tackling whatever emerges as evidence of racism. But I think that's not that's certainly not what the elite talks about now and shuts down conversation. So it's it's actually as much the silence of the elites on things that are clearly right in front of us in terms of what we're what our kids are being taught and what we see in terms of crime on the streets that's going to drive this. So what I wonder is whether um, we're talking about a silent majority here or what is strikes me as actually a very vocal kind of 50-50 split. Um, the, don't forget, you know, there's there's a, something that we've talked about a lot, the, the difference between now and the late 60s in the, in the political culture um, is that there's been this sort of um, bipolar um, counterculture uh, movement, uh, uh, countercultures on, on, on both sides. Um, I think it's no secret who's against these prevailing doctrines. It's not... It seems seems to me there is a good, perhaps half the country that is kind of on record um, already uh, saying that they're against this. Well, we have another data point from Virginia that sort of supports this. Uh, Over the course of the last couple of months, uh, the superintendent of public instruction in Virginia's Department of Education had proposed the elimination of advanced math courses for students 11th and 12th grade. Uh, in pursuit of this racial justice idea, essentially, you know, to say this, it's hard for me to pass a Turing test here because I can't really articulate the ideas in ways that uh, somebody who's a proponent of them would actually support. Essentially, it believes that people who are uh, of a minority extraction aren't capable of the sort of logic that other people are. Um, it is as racist and vile as I describe it. Um, but they were under attack by right-wing pundits and lawmakers, according to the Washington Post, and they dropped it. They dropped this plan. And Virginia's voters are more blue than purple at this point. Um, so we can't just chalk this up to, you know, the Neanderthals that vote in, in, in very affluent and highly educated Texas suburbs, um, which, well, is what you th- which is what the proponents of this sort of thing will try to do. In 1968, there were twice as many Democrats as Republicans. That's literally the case. Like the Republican Party, in terms of if you ask people whether they're Republicans or Democrats, Democrats, they were twice the size of the Republican Party. That doesn't mean that Nixon didn't win the election, and it doesn't mean in 1972 that he didn't win 61% of the vote. The whole point was 
that the Democratic Party fractured over leftist politics. And, and in particular, people had not yet moved into the Republican camp to sort of the Reagan Democrats were just, you know, this was the very nascent beginning of that kind of political shift that ended up leading to relative parity between the parties. The point was that the Democratic elites believed we talk about the very online and, you know, how people pay mu- too much attention to Twitter. And again, there was no Twitter in 1968, 69, 70. But what there was, was a, a, this, a similar effect, which was that uh, extreme views or increasingly extreme views on, on the left ended up infiltrating and dominating the conversations of the Democratic Party on matters that were of direct day-to-day concern to American voters, crime being one very important example of it, and urban decay and disorder when there were actually more people living in cities than there are now. Uh, and that, I'm, we're not talking about political rioting here. I'm just talking about violent crime and this kind of unbelievable increase in violent crime beginning in 1964, but also attitudes toward the war and toward the United States, because who was fighting the war? It wasn't the children of the elites, all of whom had deferments. All none of if you went to college, you didn't go into the military. It wasn't they, and they were the ones who were screaming about the evil of the war and the evil of participating in the war. And it was the children of Joe Lunchpail, the Demo- core Democratic voter, not a Trump voter, not a Reagan Democrat. There were no such things then, who were listening to these people talk and saying they are defaming us, they are defaming our country, they are making our lives worse on a day-to-day basis, and they seem to want us to lose against a communist regime that we are fighting a war that my son is over there fighting to defeat. Now, in 2021, we don't have anything quite as dramatic as any of that. But what we do have is like, wait a minute. Really? I mean, that's the cognitive dissonance of what the messages have become, which is uh, a boy is a girl, a girl is a boy. If she says she's a boy, if he says he's a girl, and they can play in each other's sports teams and live wherever they want to, go to whatever bathroom and say whatever they want to say. And to say, wait a minute is to be uh, a, a monstrous uh, and evil um, gender cis whatever, right? But, but that's also true. And that, but that, this is where the link with uh, the anti-racism training slash critical race theory stuff uh, hits reality, right? Because this is, I mean, the Makia Bryant case is the perfect example, right? Even a, a, a nominally liberal person who's concerned about law enforcement and how law enforcement behaves, particularly in the wake of George Floyd, cannot look at that case where a, a, a girl was trying to stab to death an unarmed opponent, uh, regardless of whether the, how the fight started. One had a butcher knife and the other did not. They can't look at that situation. And then here, as we see in, you know, elite opinion making like in Vox and in the New York Times and on NPR, the argument that 
well, they, that should have gone a different way because, you know, the cop, the cop was at fault here and that, you know, he didn't save a life. He actually cost someone unfairly her own life. And really, you can't blame her because the system made her into a murderer, a potential murderer. Like, literally, that's the argument. The argument is all these systemic problems force that girl to pick up a butcher knife and try to kill another girl. That's That doesn't comport with most people's reality. It doesn't comport with any ideas of personal responsibility. It can still be called a tragedy. And it, you can can still be a person who says, okay, well, what what are the alternatives for law enforcement? But I think those occasions when when groups like Black Lives Matter and the mainstream elite political and media opinion immediately form a narrative and will not budge from it regardless of evidence. Even people who aren't, you know, uh, fans of Fox News or Tucker Carlson uh, can look at that case and and read or listen to mainstream opinion about it. And they see that there is, as you said, John, cognitive dissonance there. So uh, briefly, because we're talking about political opinion here, there's a real opportunity for Republicans that I don't think they're capitalizing very much on yet, but they probably will once they start to internalize results like these. Um, Democrats now, for for Democrats who are interested in the polls, you know, the optimism of the American public is is a real boost to what should be the Democratic case. Um, people are have are spending more. Their consumer uh, faith is is up, and uh, the direction of the country is in a better place than it has been since two thousand six. Everybody's in a, in a pretty good mood, and the message that they hear from Democrats is relentlessly miserable. It is that we have to redistribute economic goods everywhere because the pie isn't growing. It's that this country is miserably racist and horrible, and deserves needs to be consigned into a, a, a you know a diversity training seminar, or it's 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 irredeemable. Um, and the stuff like that really grates on you if you're in an optimistic mood. I mean, they're just basically telling you that this country doesn't really have a lot of hope. And that doesn't resonate even with what people are saying to pollsters, is that people are in a, in a reasonably good mood. Post-pandemic uh, you know, behavior patterns, they can't bring themselves to say things are getting better and we're going to return to something resembling normalcy within the next within the space of the next few weeks. They can't say that. They can't allow themselves okay. to say that. And Republicans could capitalize on that by saying, "Look, things really aren't that bad." But they too are sort of addicted to a negative narrative. Um, that's what their voters want to hear: that everything's terrible. So no one is no one is capturing the sentiment, which I think is very prevalent and pronounced: that things are pretty good. We're getting better. I, I think the mistake that you're making is the idea that their voters want to hear bad stuff. Sure, a lot of their voters want to hear bad stuff, but not all of them. And that is the wait, key. Wait, wait, whose voters? About Democratic voters. Oh, okay. That is the key. No, I didn't say understand. that. I didn't say that they did want to hear that. They, they seem to assume that. I think there's right. a really underserved market for optimism that is cross-partisan. I, okay, that's my right. So that is where that and a couple of other things are where the silent majority stuff comes from. Because the way you develop the silent majority is you have to pull people away from their own camps, or they will migrate themselves without you doing much to get them because they're so horrified and disgusted by what their own camp is doing. And one of them is this. But I mean, it is related to the culture war of the 60s and the present, which is. Basically, Democrats and their leaders and stuff are talking shit about the United States. Now, I don't know whether we don't have, we're not 25 years out from World War II, and people have spent two decades or two generations being uh, taught in schools about all of the evils and sins of the United States, so maybe they are more susceptible 
to hearing this message than people were in 1969. But the speed with which the left went anti-American in the late 60s, is the, it was the animating political force behind the rise of the counter-left in the 70s and 80s that led to Reagan and led to Bush and led to the Republican Senate and eventually... Uh, by by sort of by degrees, the Republican House after forty years of Democratic rule, it was the anti-Americanism of the left, and it happened really fast. It happened really fast, right? I mean, like Martin Luther King's animating theory was America's fantastic. Just give us the same tools that everybody else has, because America is so great. All we need is to be put in the same finish line, and then we can be judged by the content of our character. Everyone can be judged the same by the content of our character. And by 1970, 6970, the Black Panthers were blowing up things and assassinating people and having parties thrown in their honor in the Park Avenue apartment of Leonard Bernstein. This was really quick. This was not... And similarly, I was thinking about this, about this whole controversy over the 1619 Project now being kind of promoted by the Department of Education. 1619 Project isn't isn't even a year old. Like, we don't change national curricula based on a a New York Times Magazine special issue that came out in July, and it's uh, it's now May, and we're now rewriting all of American education by its precepts. That's insane. I mean, I granted it was built on the foundation of decades of nonsense and illiterate crap and ludicrous distortions of history and all of that, so that it, it came out of the you know came out of the paddock really fast. But you don't overhaul American education based on this one one thing, even if it's like the greatest thing that ever happened, you know. That's also where the cognitive dissonance is. Like, where, where did this happen? Suddenly girls are boys, boys are girls, and America was racist. In, America was created the year before the Mayflower in order to promote slavery. When did that happen? Where was Did I miss a meeting? Was I in the bathroom? I mean, this is not the way actual change happens. This is the thing that causes backlashes when conventional opinion suddenly turns into something unrecognizable and everybody in the elites, just like everybody in universities, students are going in universities, they're occupying the, you know, administration buildings. None of them is going off to war. They're all, they've all got deferments. But what if... Wasn't right? And, and, and yet, what happens the entire polit... What in, and the entire professoriate and administrations, they cave. They give in. They give them their demands. They apologize. They resign from office. Right? That is, we have no spine. We have no backbone. We believe in nothing. And the truth is that the elites that are responding to the 1619 Project and the ideologues of the moment believe in nothing. They stand for nothing. All they're trying to do is get by and not get yelled at and get to keep their houses in the Hamptons and their comfortable grants and all of that and do whatever they can to make sure that the cultural revolution passes them by. And that, I'm not just, the political consequences of this, just like history shows, it's like, wait a minute. Take a breath. Are you crazy? 
I, I'm, I'm not convinced that this isn't the way change happens now, though. I mean, it, it's not the way it had happened in the past, but what if it just happened so much faster now? I mean, um, same-sex marriage was pretty fast. I mean, not not that fast, and it, and but it was, and forget about if you're for it or against it, it's a different issue, but it was very fast. I mean, really what happened, it, while it was, there was, it was bubbling up, but when there was a point when Joe Biden let slip on TV that Barack Obama in running for reelection was going to announce that he had changed his mind and was in now in favor of same-sex marriage, public opinion turned around that revelation kind of overnight. Um, in, in 2008, uh, Barack Obama was not for gay marriage. There was a candidate who was, uh, Ralph Nader, and no one was saying, if you don't vote for Ralph Nader, unfriend me. But uh, four years later, when, when Obama became the candidate who was uh, for, for gay marriage, uh, immediately after Joe Biden uh, announced that he was going to make that change, uh, the entire country sort of pivoted around this uh, moral point. But did the country pivot around the moral point? Let me just hold on a second. Convince me otherwise, yes. How did, how, how did gay marriage become legal in the United States? Through a Supreme Court ruling. Was there a piece of legislation that was passed by bipartisan by a bipartisan majority in the House and in the, in the Senate and then, and then signed by Obama, indicating a national political consensus in its favor? I mean, if I mean, I'm not saying that uh, the public now doesn't support gay marriage. Uh, that's not where I'm going with this. All I'm saying is that there are ways in which you can you can register and tell that there has been a sea change in public opinion. The Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, you know, Medicare. I mean, these like transformational pieces of legislation. They happen, and they are unrevert. They are irreversible in part because they are not dictated by by fiat, right? I mean, so I don't know. But one of the one of to Abe's earlier uh, point, which I think is important about the speed of the transformation, I do think that the the way that the media is structured now, and certainly social media, does make it more. Uh, the pace has changed significantly, and I think it also contributes to a kind of bubble on both sides. But particularly right now, since they're in power for the for the liberal Democrat liberals and Democrats, because they can say, "Oh, that's just the crazy Fox News people," right? They can kind of say, "Oh, they're just saying that they're nuts. We can't persuade them." Meanwhile, I mean, the, the the point during the Democratic convention this past one that, that struck me was, remember, they were going to do a panel, like one of these virtual panels where they all discuss kind of how how broad and, and diverse their coalition is. And so they're going to have these experts on and they were going to show on the map where the experts were. And they found out that like three out of the four of them were actually summering in Martha's Vineyard. So it would look really bad if their experts on diversity all were like vacationing in this elite uh, enclave. But there's a sense in which elite opinion among the Democrats does allow them to ignore or what I think is a kind of socially conservative, not Republican, you know, partisan conservative, a socially conservative majority of this country who doesn't resist change, but doesn't like it, doesn't like radicalism, doesn't like uh, it to happen. I would fear. also argue there's a, <clears throat> sort of an apples origins comparison here between the, the two issues. If you, it wasn't as though Barack Obama existing as the president of the United States changed opinion. There was a uh, an effort on the part of the Bush administration to ratify a constitutional amendment defining marriage, and it failed. It failed because the argument was that we need to limit freedoms, not expand them. This is an argument, the critical race theory argument, is an argument that we need to limit freedoms, not expand them. 
that certain people need to have certain things taken away from them because they are ill-begotten goods. Uh, and that is an argument that is not the same thing as extending marriage rights to gay people. It's something very different and easier to argue against. Guys, let me just pull back for a second to talk to you about our, our first sponsor today, ExpressVPN. Have you ever browsed in incognito mode? Yeah, it's not as incognito as you think. Incognito mode, like the Chrome browser itself, is a Google product, and Google has made its fortune by tracking your movements. Online, Google has defended itself against charges of this sort by saying in a court document that incognito does not mean invisible. Ah, well, how do you make yourself as invisible as possible online? You use ExpressVPN. Because one of the data points that they use to track you is your IP address. Data harvesters use it to uniquely identify you in your location. But with ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and your IP address is masked. Every time you connect to ExpressVPN, you get a random IP address shared by many other ExpressVPN customers that makes it harder for third parties to identify you or harvest your data. Best of all, ExpressVPN is super easy to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button for instant protection. So if you really want to go incognito and protect your privacy, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN. Visit expressvpn.com slash commentary and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash commentary, expressvpn.com slash commentary. Um, Okay, so uh, moving on, uh, we have uh, all kinds of positive data points, as Noah says, both economically and in terms of COVID. Um, based on what I was seeing over the past two weeks, we have a, we have a, we have a 20 to 25% drop in the number of, of daily uh, cases. Um, and we have, uh, uh, the, the, the daily uh, death toll while still egregiously high, uh, has not gone over a thousand in nearly a month. Uh, this, uh, th- these trends are beginning, are je- uh, if you look at the charts, you are seeing a pronounced downturn in cases, in, in uh, hospitalizations, and in mortality. And uh, as, as the second shots have been delivered, let's say, and full immunity has been reached by uh, so many people, I think now we're at a third of Americans who have received the second shot, maybe I have the number a little wrong. It's like 43% of adult Americans. And I guess a full third of them have received the second shot. And so you take that along with people who've had COVID and recovered and may have antibodies and all of that. And we are seeing really good news. And I am seeing where I am. And again, this now gets to the question of elite opinion. I am seeing where I am. No, not that much in terms of behavioral changes. Uh, Upper West Side of Manhattan, where you, I think you can assume most people have gotten vaccinated. This is a highly educated, you know, group of people. A lot of them, you know, are they do nothing but go from one doctor to the other, so they're not afraid of medicine and all of that. And so let's assume that they're fully vaccinated, as I am. And I was walking around yesterday all over the neighborhood, and eighty percent of people are still wearing masks. And then I say to myself, okay, this is interesting because, of course, what happened, according to the science and the CDC guidance, if you're fully vaccinated, you can walk outside without a mask. By the way, if you're not fully vaccinated, screw the CDC, you can walk outside without a mask anyway. But the guidance is if you're fully vaccinated, you can walk around without a mask. I'm telling you that most of the people I'm seeing, I'm pretty sure, are fully vaccinated and they are still wearing 
masks, which means, guess what? It's not about the science. I don't know what it's about. It's about virtue signaling. It's about saying I'm not a Trump voter. It's about who the hell knows what it's about. But there you have, it turns out that it's not that people are like, I'm free. They're like, I don't know, what about the variants? And I don't know, you know, those people could. And maybe I should be wearing it to be a good example. To I don't even know what. I don't know what. So there's good news, and then there's the behavior. Then you have elite behavior in an elite neighborhood that suggests that they are not coming out of this anytime soon somehow, emotionally. Even as Goldman Sachs is now saying they're looking at potentially 7% growth this year and 5% growth next year. And you know what that would be? The fastest growth rate over two years since 1950. In 70 years, the fastest growth rate in 70 years. And by the way, that, of course, then implicates the ludicrous speech that Biden gave on Wednesday about how America is in a crisis. We're about to have the largest systemic, sustained economic growth in seven decades. The money that made it possible for us to do things like the, uh, in, you know, the, uh, the the national highway system without raising six trillion dollars of capital. Okay, what is going on? Can hey, I? I got to ask you. I got to ask you, Abe, because you you always see a New York that's slightly different from the New York that I see. <laughs> well, <clears throat> in my in I'm in Midtown, and um, there is it's it's. There are definitely it's more. only 30 blocks from me. Yeah. It's not like it's a mile and a half. Abe is a mile yeah. and a half away from me. But, but there a- are definitely fewer masks on um, in Midtown than on the Upper West Side. I, I walk around both because, as you just said, it's so it's so close. There are definitely fewer. But, no, I would, I'm not going to pretend that there aren't um, way uh, many more masks than there should be, than I'd like there to see, like there to be. I was in uh, Central Park yesterday. Everyone was masked up. Um I, you know, what's going on is that I, I don't know that it's virtue signaling at this point. Um, I, I tend to think people are genuinely scared. I think they've been um, sort of told so many conflicting things about the science, about <clears throat> what it means to be vaccinated, about the threat from variants, about f- the possibility of another wave that I think um, they're, they're sort of uh, punch drunk. Uh, and and so you're they figure are right, better off. I don't think, in, in in a way, as we say explicitly, it's anti science. But it, you know, it it is anti science in that they're like, well, I, the experts may not know what on earth is going on. I'm just going to keep my mask on. Alec McGillis, <laughs> who writes for a variety of liberal publications, is you know a, a progressive in good standing, but is very critical of this sort of stuff. Has been pointing out the the many ways in which the left has become completely neurotic. Over all of this, he <clears throat> put a, put my attention, directed my attention to an ordinance in Brookline, Massachusetts, which passed um, over the weekend, um, involving the continuation of a mask outdoor mask mandate in defiance of the CDC's guidelines, because according to the health commissioner, uh, face coverings are a requirement that has served as a protective layer that limits the possibility of spreading COVID-19, and we're reluctant to relax it at this time. Um, he also directed us, now this is one of the most, Brooklyn is one of the most highly educated affluent places in Massachusetts, which makes it one of the most highly educated affluent places in the country. It's not about socioeconomic status and in, to the extent that it is, it's socioeconomic status moving you in the direction of being overcautious. He also identified this hilarious 
website um, for a bookstore in Decatur, Georgia. Decatur, Georgia happens to serve uh, the population that works at the CDC. And there, I want to read a bit of it for you. They're open. A bookstore is open, but by appointment only, you everyone under the age of two must wear a mask you must remain physically distant from customers and staff you must keep your children with you at all times restrooms are not open the train room isn't open appointments start on the half hour two groups are allowed in the shop at any one time each individual group is allowed to five people this is a bookstore i mean it's suicidal for a bookstore to not allow people into their store bookstores aren't doing all that great these days let alone the fact that this guidance is completely manic. It is just an expression of neuroses that if it is genuine and not just virtue signaling is, is grounds for an intervention. I, I have a theory though. I, it's, it's completely unscientific because it's based on um, anecdotal evidence of people I know, but not just in DC, uh, sort of the suburbs as well. I met with a group of friends, some of whom I haven't seen until we were all uh, fully vaccinated. We met last night for dinner at one of these outdoor places. This comes during a very tumultuous weekend if you're a restaurant owner in DC because the mayor has been, you know, fiddling with the regulations about mask wearing and had initially revised regulations saying if you're fully vaccinated, you can take your mask off inside a restaurant and then backtracked because people freaked out. Um, Anyway, I was out with these friends and they're all staunch Democrats, some quite progressive, actually, one an avowed socialist. And I I said, so, you know, what are you following in the news? Because we all had our masks off sitting there. And they all said to a T, every last one of them said, it's just such a relief. I don't have to care anymore about the news because Biden's in charge. So everything's fine. Like, I don't even follow anything. And I was like, have you been following all the executive orders or any of the policies? They're like, no, I don't have to. I just, I know it's going to be fine. But the one thing they do follow is CDC slash health slash COVID news, right? So for, I think for a large chunk of people who might've been, you know, very uh, closely following politics during the Trump years, they've turned that part off so a lot of their energy is now directed at these health regulations and it con- continuing to worry about variants and spread and the people who won't get vaccinated. And that's kind of replaced in for some of them, the time that they spend consuming other news, just again, anecdotally. But I was I was struck by how they all think it's fine because Biden's in office now. You know, what was sought here beginning in uh, December it occurred to me is something that I mean I'm not quite sure what happened uh, during during polio or how or how all that that took place. Since the key problem with polio was children, and so uh, the national vaccine drive largely took place in schools with sugar cubes. But we, the United States, determined that it was going to attempt to vaccinate the entire adult population and maybe everybody else in the United States to prevent the spread of COVID and to kill COVID off, right? That's 265 million people, I believe. Let's just think about this for a minute. Like nothing like that has ever happened before. We have never sought to have 260 million people do the same thing, go somewhere and do the same thing at the same time, pretty much in a, in a compressed period. Like everything that people do like this, right? They pay taxes, right? That's a lot of that is automatic. You know, taxes are taken out of their paychecks every week. And so the filing of the form is almost like an afterthought, like it's the money is in there no, regardless. People have to get driver's licenses, but that happens 
on a daily basis where they come in, they go out, they expire, people come in. This notion that everybody in the country was supposed to do this thing at once. We have no experience with making that demand, you know? I mean, and they're always like, oh, the vaccine hesitancy and all this and all. It just may be that this that this task was insanely unrealistic. You know, it's like there are people in this country who don't, you know, who like tens of millions of them who won't own a, well, won't do things the way other people do them for whatever reason. That is finally starting to dawn, though. And Abe, Abe yes. brought this to our, well, I read this this morning too, and everybody yeah. should, Abe brought this to our attention today, that it, they're, they're starting to get around to the notion, well, there probably will be a significant adult population that just won't get vaccinated. And now what do you do? They don't answer that, so but they're, they're at least asking the question. Right. No. So um, all we have now is the record, again, of the two great test cases, Israel being the major test case which is that Israel appeared to achieve something very close to herd immunity with way fewer numbers of the population vaccinated than we were told are necessary to achieve herd immunity. It was somewhere around 60% or a little less achieve herd immunity. And Israel has like four cases like yesterday, some, some unbelievable low number of cases. And like, I think nobody died this week. I mean, basically COVID is over in Israel. Uh, uh, and so if you look at that, you're like, well, this is really good news because, um, you know, maybe we're, we can get to 60%. And given this wildfire spread of COVID in the United States and the fact that I don't know how many people got it, 25 million people or so, I can't, I don't even know how many people got it nationally, but those people who did not die, we don't know what their immune system is says or what their antibodies are. There's some idea that their antibodies, uh, you know, aren't, 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 it's not like getting the mumps and then you have them forever, that they may be evanescent and that they're going to need to be vaccinated. But let's say just for now, they don't necessarily or whatever. Anyway, we are going to have test cases. Ashish Jha, who is, a, who is a brown epidemiologist, says you can see the difference between places where there are more vaccinations and less vaccinations in terms of the caseloads dropping vertiginously, like you can see it. Um, And so obviously getting the vaccination level up to around 60% at least will have unbelievably positive consequences. Um, I mean, one thing that hasn't been discussed much at all is what it's going to look like to have a system up in perpetuity that, that keeps everyone who wants every American wants to be vaccinated. Um, we're, we're, you know, after the summer, come the fall, we're going to be going on people who need their second, not not their second shot, but the first of their, their, their boost, the first of their update. Because, the, you know, according to right. the, the, the data, uh, your, your, your vaccination is, you know, is good for six months or so, right? Something like that? Yeah. As long as... It is easy for the people who've already been vaccinated to get the third shot. I think they're probably going to get the third shot. It's like buy-in. Like they bought in, so they'll buy in again as long as it's easy. As long as it's at the local drugstore or, you know, they could just walk in, get the shot and walk out the way you can with the flu shot. 
I don't think that's going to be a problem. Like there, there, there's not going to be vaccine hesitancy. I mean, I guess maybe people will be if they really got sick from the second, whatever. But on the other hand, those people already understood the value of the vaccine. You know, they got it relatively early. So they, so they understand the value of the vaccine. Um, I think there may be indifference though, because the things will, will look so significantly better by then. Uh-huh. There won't, right. you know, the, well, the, the urgency that came with this round is, is very, is unique. That's not going to happen again. Right. Well, of course, then there's the other issue, which is, yeah, so a lot of people don't get the flu shot and then they get the flu. Like, is COVID going to be uniquely deadly as it goes on? Like, the uh, we, we don't even know that. Like, generally speaking, these things, you know, they, they degrade over time, these viruses. They get, they, they weaken. The idea, by the way, that the variants all mean that they're going to make you sicker is all part of the sort of science fiction it's the stuff that we're used to from movie plots. It's like where they, they do the false ending where it's like, ah, we made it, you know, and then they're standing there and, and then you hear there's no triumphant music. So you're like, hmm, something's off now. And then comes 10,000 alien ships in the sky. And then it's like, oh, it's way worse. But I mean, that is in fact not necessarily the case with a vaccine. I know that's a bizarre analogy. I apologize. Um, and you know what else is a little bizarre? Our next advertiser. And I'm saying that because I don't, I'm, I'm telling you right now, I had to read one of these ads uh, for my other podcast, Glop Culture, and I couldn't get through it. Uh, apparently, the advertiser themselves enjoyed uh, the fact that I couldn't get through it and thought that it was a memorable ad. And so they decided they wanted to do commentary podcasts as well. But I'm now going to try to read this straight-faced. And my colleagues, you shouldn't mute because... If things go south, it, you can participate in the fun, okay? <clears throat> Are you a proud cat person? You love your cat, but that doesn't mean you love having a litter box in your home. Kitty Poo Club takes care of the more unpleasant parts of cat ownership so you can get back to loving your furry friend. Kitty Poo Club is a convenient all-in-one monthly litter box solution. Each month, Kitty Poo Club delivers an affordable, high-quality, recyclable litter box that's pre-filled with the litter of your choice. The boxes are leak-proof, eco-friendly, and have a fun design for every season. When the month is up, just recycle the box, and Kitty Poo Club will automatically deliver a new one to you. No changing used litter and no more cleaning the box. You can customize your order based on how many cats you have. Choose from four different litter types. Kitty Poo Club has a no-risk satisfaction guarantee, and you can easily customize or cancel anytime. And right now, Kitty Poo Club is offering you 20% off your first order, plus a free dome, free scoop, and free shipping when you set up auto-ship by going to kittypooclub.com slash commentary. Just go to kittypooclub.com slash commentary to get 20% off your first order, plus a free dome scoop and free shipping when you set up auto ship. That's kittypooclub.com slash commentary. I made it. I made Fairly. it, guys. <laughs> Just I made it. You did I, it. <laughs> I made it. Yes. And so... Uh, yes. So here we are. Uh, what, what else we got? Uh, there's gotta be other stuff we can talk about now. Oh, I know what. Andrew Yang is leading the New York mayoral race. 
uh, I think it is almost now, unless something happens and there's a big shift because now there's a lot of advertising and stuff. Andrew Yang just was handed a present last week when his uh, most important rival for the votes that he is searching for, uh, Scott Stringer, was hit with a very well, suspiciously well-timed charge that in 2001 he had manhandled uh, uh, a New York State lobbyist. Uh, He says it didn't happen. Uh, He has run for office five times since this happened, and the woman in question never brought it up until just as the race was hitting its high water mark. And uh, he says that they were dating uh, and whatever. Okay, so uh, just from the accusation, for which there is absolutely no contemporary forensic evidence or anything like that, remember these cases where there's no evidence? Uh, A party endorsement that Scott Stringer got from the Working Families Party has been retracted. Several several, uh, endorsements have been retracted, and he is... So Stringer and Yang are essentially running as the non-crazies in the race, okay? And this is driving New York liberals and leftists in the Democratic Party absolutely stark raving insane. Uh, Not just liberals, but like people who understand government, like Yang has never worked in government. Uh, There's all sorts of evidence of the things he claimed to have done in the private sector He didn't really do or whatever he did was pretty minor and that this sort of emergence as as a as a major political figure, which really started or some kind of political figure, which started with this bizarre campaign he launched for for, for president in 2019 and, you know, got got him some weird purchase by getting two or three or four percent in Democratic um, polls uh, that, you know, he's kind of like a, a, a fake of a fake of a fake figure, like at least Trump was, in fact, a successful businessman or a successful brander or something like that. Yang isn't any of that, and he doesn't know what he's doing, and he's never held office, and he doesn't seem to be that successful a businessman, so what the hell is going on? So Ben Smith in the New York Times writes this piece called Help, We Can't Stop Writing About Andrew Yang, and it's all this, why are you doing this? Why is Andrew Yang getting all this coverage? Well, it's very simple. He's getting all this coverage, and he's the only one who's getting this coverage because he's been leading in the polls for six months, and like people with two or three percent in the polls are mad because he gets a lot of coverage, relatively speaking, not that anybody is getting a lot of coverage in this race, and they're not, and so it's like, this is terrible, uh, and, you know, it's uh, how, how dare they and all of this. But then Ben Smith drops the hammer, okay, which is interesting. Because the, the, the proper comparison with Yang, if he wins and he is as empty a suit as, as a lot of people seem to think he is, is he's the guy from being there. He's Chauncey Gardner, Chance the Gardener. He's the guy who comes out of nowhere, says, speaks in platitudes, and... Uh, somehow ends up as president of the United States. Uh, that that would be the sort of, that's a satirical novel by Jerzy Kaczynski made into a movie uh, with Peter Sellers in 1979, and that that's who he is. And um, here's what Ben Smith says. Yang's surprising popularity may also reflect how the city's establishment left and its echo chamber on Twitter are pulling the campaign away from the concerns of some voters, leaving Yang as the sole candidate speaking to them. 
New York, uh, New York, it should be noted, is a city where Democratic voters put coming back from COVID-19 as their top issue. And they consistently say they're more worried about crime than racial injustice. But what are all the other candidates talking about? Defunding the police, closing down Riker, you know, closing down the prisons, bail, you know, making sure that no one ever has to pay bail. Okay. Mr. Yang's sunny optimism, says Ben, is authentically appealing. Who wouldn't vote for his vibe? But sometimes it can feel a little empty. Now, he this is the only sentence in the piece that actually deals with the fact that maybe the reason Yang is winning is that everybody else sounds like a crazy person, and there are 20 of them, and they're all dividing up the 40% of, or 45% or whatever it is, of New York Democratic voters who who love the crazy. And everybody else is like, getting back to the start of this podcast, you're all crazy. He just doesn't seem very crazy. But so it's not like crazy. he said, he said, let me just finish this one point. He said the other day, he would like to hire Catherine Garcia, one of the people who's running against him, and a couple of other people to work in his administration after the election's over to help him run the city, right? I'd like Catherine Garcia to like be a deputy mayor to help him run the city. She's like, this is offensive. How condescending. Really? You're saying you want to be a coalition candidate, bring the other people who are in the race running against you into a coalition to help you run the city, and that's condescending? That's actually politics. That is what politics is about. I don't, I'm not your enemy. You know what? If I win, you come in and we'll all do this together. And woke Democrats are so, first of all, she wants to win and she doesn't want to like be subsumed like that, but they're all so nuts now that a man saying he would like to have some women work for him is itself an act of sexism. They're insane, and they're letting him walk into the mayoralty. <clears throat> there's a, there's an online appetite for this, like, monomaniacal Yang criticizing from uh, progressives. I stumbled across one from Politico the other day, which, which I decided to spoil because so it's, it's like these uh, LGBT activists are lashing out at Andrew Yang for his uh, controversial comments about gay people. The controversial comments were that he has his two campaign managers are gay. That was, that was deemed in, incredibly rude to even say as much because it's touristy. Like he's a tourist, according to these progressive people who have no constituency. It's not just that it's crazy. It is crazy. But it's a sort of crazy that I don't know whether or not the voters of New York are prepared to have a backlash over. What the what what Ben wrote there, which was really resonant, is that it's it's crazy insofar as it's miserable. It's just immiserating the kind of ideas that you have to espouse and talk about every day if you're a really truly concerned progressive and he's a happy, sunny, optimistic guy. And there is a market for optimism. As I said in the earlier part of this podcast, that is very underserved, even among progressives who don't necessarily think that they're horrible, miserable people inhabiting a matrix of oppression. You know what else? People like to like politicians. I know people don't really understand. You know, people think that this is offensive and it's like, oh, you want to have a beer with George W. Bush and not Gore. And then he he starts the war on terror. It's just terrible. We've had eight years in this city of de Blasio, which is like having your boring wet noodle pothead uncle coming over 
sitting in your living room, putting his feet on your coffee table, taking the remote, and then watching Antiques Roadshow for three hours with his bong in his lap. So, you know, even Democrats want something else. They want, and some of the people are perfectly nice and sort of likable, like Maya Wiley is perfectly nice and likable, but she's crazy. The city is going through a crime surge. The subways are disasters. Our friend Tim Carney, who grew up in Greenwich Village, walked through Washington Square Park this weekend and took pictures of it, put them up on Twitter. Washington Square Park, which is a glory of, 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 of city parks, which was a junkie-filled disaster, hippie sleeping camp place from like the 60s till the 90s and then got cleaned up, is now a garbage dump. Yet again, people don't want to live in a garbage dump. I, I, I mean, why is that so hard for Democratic politicians to understand? Like, they, they're living inside their own heads. It's bananas. And so they, have, they are basically ceding this election to a guy because he is untrammeled by all of them and doesn't seem to be beholden to anything. I don't know if that's good, by the way. He could be great. He could be catastrophic. Just want to make one other note. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, as we know, his office, his apartment got raided last week. And there's a deep irony I want to just share with you because wh- whether or not, you know, the Biden administration is pursuing him unjustly because of uh, blah, 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 all of that, right? Rudy came out and said, this is terrible. This is a kind of raid. They should never do this kind of thing. How outrageous is it to have this kind of thing? So I think Rudy Giuliani was a great mayor. And I was surprised, by the way, to think that he would be a good mayor because I was so angry and disgusted with his behavior when he was U.S. attorney in New York in the 1980s. You know why? Because he constantly staged unjust raids, went into people's offices with very limited warrants, frog marched them out, having set up cameras to make sure that these, you know, brokers who he had decided to target so that he could get famous could be shown on screen in front of their families being frog marched out and arrested in handcuffs, particularly a firm called Princeton Newport Securities, against whom there was no case. And he made these cases. He profited from this and then those cases were dropped time and again because of insufficient evidence. He invented the unjust raid. You know, so the chickens are coming home to roost for him and he should only enjoy. If he didn't like it, maybe he shouldn't have maybe he shouldn't have made it so attractive for other attorneys and US attorneys and people like that to frog march people or to raid their apartments in public with cameras. That's all I got to say. And with that, we will say goodbye for until tomorrow. I'm uh, for Noah, Abe, and Christine. I'm John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning.